Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Britt Bennett's novel, The Vanishing Half, was published two years ago, it became an immediate bestseller and was included in the New York Times Best Books of 2020. The story of twins from a small Louisiana town is riveting as it explores themes of identity, colorism, and class. The novel is available now in paperback. And later in the hour, we'll listen back to my interview with the author from March. Also, our series of local artists, in their own words, speaking of the arts, today with surrealist sculptor Morgan Lugo. First, the photos of P.H. Polk were radical in the early 20th century, at a time when most images of African Americans appeared through the lens of Jim Crow segregation. Polk captured the authenticity of black people with pride and dignity. A series of Polk's photos, Unframed Images, is on view at the Wren's Nest Historic House Museum. Professor Dana Chandler, the university archivist at Tuskegee University, curated the exhibition. He joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Polk is a compelling figure in 20th century America. Please tell us about his background. Prentice H. Polk was born in Tallahassee, Alabama in 1898. He was a very dynamic individual as a youngster. He was the youngest of four children to a minor, Jacob Prentice Polk, and his seamstress wife, Christina Romelia Ward, and uh, he is one of the preeminent black photographers of all time. His initial time in school was spent at the Tuggle Institute in Birmingham, Alabama as a boarding student. By 1916, he enrolled in evening classes at what was the then called the Tuskegee Normal Industrial Institute, now called Tuskegee University. Polk 
intended to study art. But Booker T. Washington quickly informed him that they didn't have any art classes. They did have, though, a photography division, and Polk took to that rather quickly, studying mm. under his mentor, Cornelius Batty. Batty being one of the top Black photographers as well. Each one of the, what I call the top three, the Black photographers at Tuskegee, Cornelius Batty, A.P. Badeau, or Arthur P. Badeau, and P.H. Polk, they were all unique in the way that they approached their art. Each one spent time looking at things from a different perspective. And in your introduction, you were exactly right. Polk, he tried to document everyday life amongst African-Americans. Now, he did study under some pretty important people. He uh, was apprenticed to a white photographer, Fred A. Jensen, in Chicago for a while. And that helped spur on his desire to photograph things in a different way, using and playing on light and shadow, uh, often referred to as Rembrandt photography. I love a quote I came across in preparation for talking with you. The photographer Fred Jensen told Polk he had to learn to read light like you read a newspaper. That's exactly right. That's exactly what he told Polk. He was the photographer here at Tuskegee from 1933 until his death in 1984. I had to smile when I read that Booker T. Washington said he didn't have any use for a black Rembrandt. The paintings of Rembrandt were... Polk's passion, and he wanted to paint like that. Would you elaborate on on that story of what Booker T. Washington said to Polk? Well, Booker T. Washington was very pragmatic, and he taught his students through his teachers. His philosophy, his pedagogy, was to teach the students to become teachers themselves, that's what his whole goal was. And primarily, it was set up to work with things like plumbing, carpentry, etc. He was not interested in the arts at all. Later on, the arts will play an important role in Tuskegee, having its own theater and, and artists in residence, etc. But at the time of Booker T. Washington, not so much. But what he didn't realize was that Polk took this notion of Rembrandt painting to a next level with his photography, because that's exactly what he did. He used Rembrandt lighting in his photographs. And in those photographs that we have on display in the traveling exhibit, you'll see some of that very interesting play on light and dark. And how does he achieve that with his subjects? Well, it depends. He had his own studio at his home and here on campus, and he would set up his lighting and uh, get the right angle. Sometimes he wouldn't even use his own lighting. He'd use the lighting that was available to him on campus. And what he would do is he would photograph people so that it emphasized their features while de-emphasizing the stuff around them. One of my favorite photographs 
that's not a part of the display that we found later on was a photograph of Martin Luther King giving a speech here on campus in 1958. The photograph itself is amazing in that he takes the photograph while Martin Luther King is at a podium speaking and the light is such that you see Martin Luther King standing at the podium and behind him against the curtains is this huge shadow of the man. So the shadow was bigger than the man. The, I think that's amazing because all pho photographs tell a story and that's exactly what he was trying to do here. He photographed people from all walks of life, middle-class African-Americans, well-educated people, and the working class. Why was it important for him to showcase a variety of black life in his work? Because he knew, like many others did, that there were not a lot of photographs out there showing African-Americans in their natural settings. And he wanted to do that. And I think that there's an example that I can give. Again, not a photograph that we included with the collection because everybody basically know this, knows this image very well. It's called the boss. But they don't know the story behind the boss. That photograph is of an African-American woman who kind of sort of looks like the old Aunt Jemima, but not. The woman, he saw her standing in front of the campus at a produce stand. And he asked her, can I photograph you? And she said, of course, but it's gonna cost you a dollar. Now, he had to have that woman and she is standing there, defiant, self-assured, and in her clothes that, are, that have holes in them. But it is such a photograph, such a dynamic image that it's showing the confidence of African-American people at that time. And that photograph was taken in the early 40s. So yeah, there are plenty of examples in his collections, which we have over 3,600 images in our archives. My goodness. Would you tell us some highlights of the series that's on display at the Wren's Nest? Yeah, this it includes a lot of my favorite photographs. And these are photographs that that highlight African-American life in a way that most people are, are unaware of, like the image of the Johnny Andrew Memorial Hospital, the first hospital in the state of Alabama specifically for African-Americans. It's photographed when it had snowed, and it is a gorgeous photograph of that old structure. By the way, that old structure is now where the archives is at, ah. that old building. So yeah, it holds a special place for me. There's photographs of Blanche's wife. There are photographs of a variety of people in different settings. One of them is this woman who's dressed in her finest. And I think that exemplifies that, you know, we think of African-Americans at that time living in shacks, at sharecropping, working the farm. We never think about them being middle-class and upper-middle-class individuals, educated individuals. And uh, this photograph certainly highlights that. She's in a beautiful dress, and she looks so refined. 
that you can't help but get a feeling from that, that there's more to the story than what we've been told or what we may think we know. Is that the image of Mildred Hansen Baker? Yes, it is. What can you tell us about her? I can't tell you very much about her. I do know that her beauty caught him. And according to his son, Donald, his son, Donald, is the one that gave us the collection and the copyright to all the images. And according to Donald, she was one of P.H. Polk's favorite characters to film. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Dana Chandler, curator of Unframed Images, photography from the collection of P.H. Polk. The exhibition is on view at the Wren's Nest Historic House Museum. What are some other highlights of the exhibition at Wren's Nest? Well, it shows some images of the campus, daily life. The photos were handpicked by me specifically because of how they portray people in everyday life. And I'm thinking back to how Booker T. Washington told the young man, forget being Rembrandt or Van Gogh, but maybe you can learn something about mixing paints. People need painters. Do you think that P.H. Polk eventually felt he was the artist he always wanted to become? I don't think that I know it. According to his son, Donald, he felt like his accomplishments, especially after his many of his photographs were placed on display and he won so many awards for his photographs, a selection of his photographs was exhibited in New York at the Museum of Natural History in 1974, at the Washington Gallery of Photography in Washington, D.C., and the Studio Museum of Harlem in New York. His photographs also traveled as an ex exhibition that was shown in the Soviet Union and Nigeria. In 1981, he was awarded a fellowship for the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as an exhibition at the Cochrane Museum of Art in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I think one of the ones that really, really he appreciated, that he liked, he, he I think the, the most important recognition he had was at the Birmingham Museum of Art in a solo exhibition in 1983. That really caught him off guard and was one of his favorite exhibits. I think it's because it was in his home state and he was born in Bessemer, which is there in the Birmingham area. He was so happy to get that opportunity. I can imagine having been born, what, 35 years after the Emancipation Proclamation and then landing his solo exhibition in Birmingham which had seen such violence, such horror. It must have been the summit for him. I think it was. You know, all the, all the, all the other things were important to him. Uh, his son said that it seemed like the Birmingham Museum of Art exhibition was the most important to him. And I think that Polk would smile today after finding out that his photos had traveled all around the South many places in the South, in Alabama and Mississippi, 
and in Georgia. And I think he would be really thrilled with that. What are your hopes for further exposure of this man's art and perhaps elevating his name? He, I mean, after all, much of his work was early in the 20th century. Do you have hopes for a larger touring exhibition? I do. And at this point, we are working with two different organizations, the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture on an exhibit and also a major exhibit to be hosted in Houston, Texas of more of his works. And right now we're working diligently to compile other places for this exhibit to go. What do I hope to get out of it? I want people to get two things. Number one, how important photographs were to African-Americans at that time. Because, you know, prior to this, there were very few images featuring people of color anywhere. What few that had been done, like the book Roll, Jordan, Roll, which was a, a book about the Gullah and had wonderful photographs in it. They would cut the photographs out of that book and put them on the walls of their homes and throw the book away <laughs> just so they can have these images. Now, these images oh. that we see also, the second thing is I want people to understand that small places like Tuskegee are archives, archives at places like Fisk, at the Atlanta University Center, Spelman College and other HBCUs throughout the United States, that we have these rich collections of materials that could be considered as artwork. And we have them available, we're relevant. And people need to realize that this stuff is available to be used. Let me give you for one more instance. There is an image out there that's been published for years and years showing Eleanor Roosevelt in a plane with one of the Tuskegee Airmen. I'm sure you've seen it. Yes. Many, 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 many people throughout the years have said to me that that image was taken by the federal government. It was not taken by the federal government. We have the negative here at Tuskegee. It is a P.H. Polk original. Oh, wow. That's actually been cropped. Now, the thing is, that image is iconic of Eleanor Roosevelt and the Tuskegee Airmen. It's used everywhere. A few people realize that it's from P.H. Polk and it's part of this wonderful collection that we have available here at the archives. Indeed, what you have described about your archives and those of other HBCUs are treasure troves of our collective history. And I thank you for sharing this information with us and for elevating this artist. Well, you're very welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity, especially to be a part of NPR and the work that is done there and your show. And we really appreciate getting the chance to highlight our collections, especially that traveling exhibit as it makes its way through the other places here in the South. This is all part of the Southern Literary Trail and its intent to show the wonderful art and literary works of people of the South. 
and uh, please support them. Professor Dana Chandler, the university archivist and faculty member at Tuskegee University. He is the curator of the exhibition Unframed Images, photography from the collection of P.H. Polk, on view at the Wren's Nest Historic House Museum through July 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, New York Times best-selling author Britt Bennett amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Britt Bennett's novel, The Vanishing Half, was published two years ago, it became an immediate bestseller and was included in the New York Times Best Books of 2020. The story of twins from a small Louisiana town is riveting as it explores themes of identity, colorism, and class. The novel is available in paperback now. When the author joined me in March, she described the town where her main characters, the twins Desiree and Stella, grew up. Yes, the twins come from a town called Mallard, Louisiana, which is a very small farm town that is oriented around the idea of colorism. Um, so they come from a town that is occupied by light-skinned Black people who believe that it's superior to be light-skinned. And they both have some very different reactions to coming from a place like that. Mm. It's just so strange to read about this colorism, the strangeness of people who have this standard who are never accepted as white, but refuse to be treated like Negroes. And one of the things that was sort of chilling was that the founder of the town envisioned a more perfect Negro. You write each generation lighter than the one before. But a few generations later, what has this pigmentocracy meant for the people of Mallard? Yeah, I think that that was one of the big questions I had thinking about the book, because this is a community that pursues lightness for its own sake. 
it doesn't yield in any actual tangible or material benefits for this community. They still are living in this the small sort of poor community. Um, they still experience racial violence. They still experience discrimination. It's not like being light spares them from any of those consequences. But at the same time, they are trying to forge this different place for themselves. Um, they are trying to separate themselves from darker skinned Black people. So to me, there was always something really uh, absurd about the idea of this type of community um, because it's pursuing lightness just for its own sake. And to think about the implications that that causes on those who live there and also those who leave. Yeah. The book is divided into four parts. The first is titled The Lost Twins. Please tell us about Desiree and Stella. Yeah, so Desiree and Stella descend from the founder of the town, and they are seen as being charmed in one way because they are the daughters of uh, many generations of the of the founder, but they're also seen as sort of cursed in a different way because their father um, is, is brutally killed. Uh, so they come from this very kind of mixed lineage, but Desiree is the one who is more outgoing. She wants to desperately leave Mallard and, and go off and find herself in the big city and become an actor. And Stella only wants to go to college and, and imagines that she'll move back to Mallard and live a very quiet life. Um, but through a series of twists and turns, they uh, live some very different fates. And in the beginning of the book, Desiree has returned to the town and, and Stella has disappeared. Your exploration of the multiple roles we take is most striking with the twins. In a high school production of Romeo and Juliet, you write, Desiree felt like herself instead of half a twin when she was Juliet on stage. And I love reading this sentence from Desiree. Telling Stella a secret was like whispering love into a jar and screwing the lid tight. Why did you want to write about twins? Well, I think I'm always very interested in sisterhood as a person who has two sisters and is generally just interested in writing about the relationships between and among women. But I think twins were particularly interesting, interesting to me because of that tightness of that bond, um, because of the way that for these twins, they love each other and they feel also like they are sort of trapped in this claustrophobic relationship at the same time. And I think Stella's decision to pass is more striking because they are twins and because her decision requires her to leave her sister behind. Um, so for her, it is, a, it is a decision that she's making about identity and race, but it's also a decision that she is making to forge her own life without her sister. And she feels like it's only possible to forge her own life if she leaves her sister behind. Mm. The twins are little girls when they witness the tragedy of their father's death, this brutal murder. What is the impact of his death on the trajectory of their lives? Well, I think, as you said, I mean, the fact that they witness it is, of course, traumatic but also the fact that his death is never quite explained. It's, it's a really senseless death that doesn't have a clear cause. And I think that that's something in particular that haunts Stella, who is the more kind of rational thinker between the two of them. That's something that, that truly haunts her, the sort of senseless violence that her father suffers only because he's Black. Um, 
and I wanted to think about how both of these twins witnessing the same traumatic event respond to it very differently. I think Desiree thinks, you know, her father was very light and he still was killed. So therefore, who cares about lightness? That's kind of her, her conclusion. But Stella's conclusion is that her father was very light and he still was killed. So it's not enough to be light. You need to be white if you want to be safe. Mm. There's a subtle class distinction between the girl's mother, Adele, and their father, Leon. How does this begin another probing theme, that of classism in the vanishing half? Yeah, I think that class is such an interesting category because it is a category that it's, I, I think we understand it to be more possible to move uh, between and perhaps even easier to move between than something like race. But at the same time, it is something that, again, you continue to carry with you or other people will continue to remind you of as soon as you move from one class to another. So I think for the twins, you do have you know, her mother who comes from a higher class than her fa- their father. So this idea of whether the twins are blessed or cursed sort of as a response uh, uh, to that. But then also later for Stella, she meets a white man, but he's not just any white man. He's, he's a very wealthy white man who comes from family money. So not only does she have to think about how to pass for white, she also has to think about how to pass for wealthy. And that requires its own type of performance. Mm. Leaving Mallard was Desiree's idea. This was in 1954. Staying in New Orleans was Stella's. How did Stella begin passing as white? This is something that Desiree has to kind of untangle in the beginning of the book because for her, Stella passing as white was just like a singular moment or a, or a quick decision. But she comes to realize that this is something that Stella had been thinking about a bit longer. And being new in New Orleans is what gives her the practical reason, uh, the sort of logistical reason to actually do it. So for Stella, ostensibly, she's passing for white because she needs to get a job. And she will get hired for this well-paying job if they believe her to be white. But you learn that Stella has been thinking about these questions of, uh, of what it means to be white or what it means to be black for much longer than that. Britt, you are masterful with metaphor. And I know it was actually the name of a store in New Orleans. But the place where Stella works is called Maison Blanche, essentially the white house. That must have been fun for you. <laughs> it was fun for me. Um, and it was something, again, yeah, I, I was reading something and stumbled upon that department store and immediately was like, yeah, that's perfect. Uh, that has to be where she, like that is literally the place where she walks in as a black woman and leaves as a white woman. So yeah, it was a happy accident stumbling upon that detail. And continuing great metaphors, Desiree ends up in Washington, D.C., and she takes a job at the FBI. What does she do there? Uh, She becomes a fingerprinting analyst, and that was just a detail taken from my mom's life. That that was work that she did when she was a young woman. She left her small hometown and went to D.C. with her sister, actually, and worked as as a fingerprint analyst. And that was always just something interesting and cool that my mom had done that I, I loved the idea of her doing that type of work and found it really fun, but I'd never written about it. And when I started working on this book, it sort of occurred to me like, duh, that, that is something that speaks to the thematics of this book that 
this is a woman whose job is to tell who people are from markings on their skin. And yet she is somebody and she and her sister are people who are moving through this world um, ambiguously because of what they look like. And her sister is the person she most desperately wants to find but is unable to. Mm. It's in D.C. where Desiree meets Sam, a lawyer whom she marries. I know your dad's also a lawyer, but I think from what I've read, not at all like Sam. What's (laughs) wrong with Sam? Yeah, my dad did not appreciate uh, that the lawyer in the book is so terrible. So yes, he was not at all um, um, based on my dad, but Sam um, works as a, a prosecutor and he's uh, a man who, when Desiree meets him, seems like he's just Prince Charming, um, but turns out to be um, an abuser. So a lot of, uh, in, in part, you know, I thought about Sam because Desiree, when she meets him, she really has no family. She's sort of estranged from her mother and Stella has already disappeared. So he becomes the center of her life in this way. And it seems like he's going to kind of rescue her. But over time, she realizes that he is not her rescuer and that he is somebody who wants to abuse and control her. Mm. They have a daughter together, a sweet child named Jude. Jude's experience after her mother returns with her to Mallard is heartbreaking. The description of how she's bullied is almost as disturbing as her grandfather's death. How does Jude's darkness further illustrate the absurdity and the injustice of colorism. Yeah, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to introduce Jude, Desiree's daughter, and to think about what it would be like for her to grow up in this place. And it was something that I began to, as I wrote it, began to think of as as a type of violence, what she suffers. And not only that, I wanted to think about how once she eventually is able to escape from this town as she grows up, how she still carries the town with her and how she still carries the ideology of the town with her. It's not something that she can just easily shake because this is a town that tried to teach her to hate herself. So I started to think, okay, once she eventually leaves this place, how is it that she can try to unlearn that hatred? And how how does you deal with this painful childhood? I think it's something that she tries to sort of outrun in a way. I think, you know, she wants to become a doctor. She wants to move on and do these other things and tries to tell herself that she's past it because she no longer lives in Mallard. Um, But it's something that seeps its way into her relationships. It seeps its way into how she thinks about herself as she moves through the world. And I wanted to be real about that. I didn't want to make it seem like you can just shake something like that once you leave. I think we are all shaped by our paths in different ways. So it's something that she tries to kind of outperform in a way and, and tries to tell herself that that will be enough, but still finds herself um, being haunted by this, this past. We haven't talked much about the men in this story. Early Jones is one of my favorite characters ever. I love Early. Would you tell us about him? Yeah, Early is one of my favorites too. He's a bounty hunter who uh, you meet at the beginning of the book. And he is sort of has this tough exterior, but this heart of gold. And you learn that he has his own childhood wounds that he's trying to kind of outrun. But I I love that character too. I I think that he is somebody who 
kind of begins the book sort of thinking of himself as a man who never settles down and never really has roots and is very, uh, very easily walks away from everything. Um, but then when his story collides with Desiree's, you learn that that's not so true and it's not so easy for him to leave her behind. <laughs> Indeed. And you're writing. Oh, my goodness. He seduces her with fruit. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was sweet. I Part of that was I think my mom told me a story about having a crush on the neighborhood boy who would carry the groceries to her house. Um, and always being a little embarrassed because <laughs> she grew up in a family that was, that they didn't have a lot of money and she was kind of embarrassed for him to come to her house. She had a crush on him. So I always thought something about I, this guy, you know, that there's something very, I guess, uh, you know, I, I never, I didn't grow up in any type of setting where some, like the idea of someone bringing groceries to your house, um, who you had a crush on was such a, was such like a specific detail. So I love the idea of early showing up in her house with these groceries and that transforming into this sort of gesture of devotion that was very like sweet. So, so yeah, it was something that kind of spun out from this story that my mother told me about growing up in the small farm town, but um, became, I think, a, a type of, of courting that, um, that I thought was really sweet. It is. And, and courting is a better description than seduction because it really is more that he woos her with the fruit he brings. I got to tell you, I picture early as Idris Elba. <laughs> I mean, I think nobody would turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> Reese is another richly drawn character and a good person. How does Reese's story further illustrate being two people in one lifetime? Yeah, I think Reese um, was a character who I really loved because I thought that his his story kind of becomes a counterpoint to Stella's in a lot of ways. Um, Jude Re meets Reese um, and and they fall for each other, and he tells her that he's trans. And I loved the idea of his story being a counter to Stella because he is somebody who experiences a physical transformation, but remains himself. His his transformation brings him closer to himself versus Stella, who doesn't really change physically, but becomes somebody else psychologically and emotionally. So I love the idea of those stories being intention, but also I just love the idea of, yeah, I think he's a sweetheart. I think that he he is somebody who really wants to love Jude in a way that she does not believe anybody would love her. So, so much of the tension, I think, in that relationship is both of these people who grew up under circumstances where they were made to feel unlovable trying to learn how to love each other and allow themselves to be loved. And his introduction signals such a welcome change in Jude's life. She has friends, she has a community. And his friendship with drag queens lets you explore yet another aspect of dual or multiple roles. Yeah, I, I loved that writing that part of the book where Jude is like kind of her college years and she, as you said, she makes friends, she she finds community and she finds love. Um, but I loved the idea of drag being a different way to think about gender, to think about playing with identity and experimenting with identity um, in a way that's not traumatic, in a way that like Stella's experience of transformation is quite traumatic for her. Um, but for the community that, that Jude finds in going to these drag shows, and, you know, that is a type of, um, 
I, there was something about that that I just really loved of a way of thinking about identity as, as play and as um, experimentation and as something that can be liberating. Yeah. At first, Stella's choice to pass as white seemed difficult to maintain, but she manages to do so. At what cost to her? I mean, I think at great cost to her. I mean, off the bat, she is forced to leave behind her family. She's forced to leave behind her sister. And she's forced to leave behind a, you know, huge chunks of her past. She's never quite able to form intimate relationships with people, not even her daughter or her husband, because she can't really be honest about her own life and what she's experienced. So there was something about that that I always found really sad. While at the same time, I also found, I think that what Stella experiences is for her in a lot of ways liberating. She does forge a path for herself that would not have been possible otherwise. So there is something liberating, but at the same time, very painful. I read that you had no fewer than 17 media bidders for the rights to this story. I, I believe it was HBO that you finally agreed with. Is that true? That is true. Yeah, it was a, it was a whirlwind of an experience <laughs> of lots of lots of phone calls. But it was so exciting to see, you know, we had so much really great attention for the book and so many people who were really excited about the possibility of adapting it. And of course, it's amazing to land at HBO, which I think makes such incredible uh, television. So couldn't be happier about where we ended up. So will it be a series or a movie? We're developing it as a limited series. Ah. And any idea when it will come out? Uh, no idea right now. Um, we're still in early days of developing it and trying to get the screenplay done. So we're still we're still at the beginning, but I'm excited to see how it all turns out and, and to read the, the final versions. New York Times bestselling author Britt Bennett from our March conversation. More information about her acclaimed book, The Vanishing Half, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring surrealist sculptor Morgan Lugo. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Morgan Lugo, and I'm a sculptor who is predominantly working in cast metals, such as cast bronze, aluminum, and iron. But I do as well work in fabricated steel, as well as resins, plasters, concrete, and most recently neon. The subject matter of my sculptures is based around trying to create a physical representation of fleeting moments and fragmented memories and how these could possibly be stored within our minds. I'm specifically interested in exploring the physicality of memory because about six years ago when I was in my BFA program at Georgia State, 
I got a really bad head injury in which I lost my memory for about a month and a half. It took me almost a year and a half to recover from most of the side effects. One side effect I still struggle with is vertigo. And so a lot of the elements within my pieces reflect kind of the weightless ephemeral feeling that I get personally when I'm experiencing vertigo. I have a lot of like swirling structures with multiple faces, fragmented body parts, all arranged within molecular structures. I would say that my work is surrealist in nature because it is very detailed and realistic, but it is not representation of a specific composition or human body that is existing within reality at this specific time. It's also intentional that I'm using materials that are known to withstand the test of time to describe subject matter that is very ephemeral and very intangible. I didn't actually start making art until I was in college and um, it was a huge shock to my friends and family as well as myself actually because I was an ice hockey goalie for 12 years and I went to school on an ice hockey scholarship and I'm actually the only woman in the state of Georgia that has ever won this specific scholarship. So I didn't play sports and I chose to go to art school on a whim because I felt like I had creativity within me that I didn't know how to express and I thought it was a really big mistake until I found sculpting and specifically metal casting and it really changed my life and I truly feel like I am where I'm supposed to be. What motivates and inspires me about what I get to do every day for a living is the fact that I just feel so incredibly capable with all of the things I've been able to learn. I am now a professional welder. I can build 20-foot monuments. I have a very strong knowledge of engineering, thermodynamics, chemistry, just all of these things that I never thought that I would end up doing, and especially because I don't fit the mold of someone who should be doing this job. I'm a very feminine Latina woman excelling in a hyper-masculine field, and it's really exciting because I feel like the more I am myself, the more I can be an example for other people, specifically other people who don't fit within the gender stereotypes of what their job is and what their passion is. I think the more we are fully ourselves, the more we fully lean into our, who we are and what we want to do, the better impact we can make on the world. I'm so proud of being from Atlanta and I choose to call it my home because I don't think I'll ever be able to find the sense of community and support and warmth that I have here anywhere else. I've been born here, I left for a while, when I came back, there's just no place like Atlanta. And I think people constantly forget how important our cultural community is to the entire world. We influence art and culture and music. Atlanta's the heart of the South and I think people constantly forget how much we defy Southern stereotypes. We're a majority minority city, when we go anywhere in the world, you're hearing people sing about our gas stations, our culture, our people, and it's incredible. I love experiencing all the different types of galleries in Atlanta. I frequently go to day and night projects, Mint, Swan Coach House, Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia, the High Museum. But I think what's also really cool about Atlanta is the underground aspect of people 
doing what they want to do and having all of these secret pop-up art shows and keeping art and culture alive outside of specific institutions that can limit the creative freedom of the people involved in shows. I think the best part about the Atlanta art scene and music scene is that because it's not oversaturated so much like New York or LA, it feels more real and it feels more for the people, which is essentially what you want. The easiest place to see my work would be on my Instagram and my handle is Morgan Lugo Sculpture. But I have a solo show up right now at Day and Night Projects called When the World Feels Weightless. I am a part of Something to Declare a contemporary Latin art exhibit celebrating notable Latinx and Hispanic artists from the Eastern Seaboard at the Queen Lawn Visual Arts Center. I will be in a show later this year at the Robert Kent Gallery in Marietta, as well as the Little Things Show in Swan Coach House. Hopefully you guys can check out my work. Surrealist sculptor Morgan Lugo and our series Speaking of the Art. More information about Lugo's work is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Each summer, as temperatures rise and humidity increases in Atlanta, the mountains of western Carolina offer relief from the heat, along with gorgeous scenery just a two-hour drive from Atlanta. And there's a soundtrack for that visual splendor, the Highlands Cashers Chamber Music Festival. Emory University professor and pianist Will Ransom is the artistic director of the festival. We're starting our 41st season, and it's a quite an extensive festival of over 50 concerts and salons and feasts, uh, which are dinner parties with the musician guests. We do have some really magical programs and performers coming up. Uh, some that come to mind are Cello Mania, a Grammy Award winner from the Eroica Trio, is going to lead a group of seven cellists in a whole program of pieces for everything from solo cello through to all seven of them playing at one time. And I'm particularly excited that we have this one brilliant young cellist who's only 12 years old from Atlanta, Philip Jung, who's going to be joining us and getting a chance to play with the six other amazing professional cellists. Lots of free concerts. We have a, a children's concerts this year with the Gary Motley Trio doing a program called Just Jazzing Around. And his trio also, we're trying something new this year, will have a jazz jam that's free and anybody can bring their instruments and sit in with the band and just have a great time. This year's events begin today and continue through August 7th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, wishing you a safe and happy holiday weekend. We're back Tuesday at 11 a.m. with architect and professor Tristan Al-Haddad, discussing his permanent installation at Georgia Tech, the Crossland Chroma Project. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, 
wabe.org slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.